1: One minute before three o'clock on a Friday afternoon on Southern California Live on KKLA and K Praise, I'm Bob Lapine. Thank you for coming along with us this afternoon. I'm excited about what we're gonna talk about. I'm guessing that uh, if if we could go back two or three months and I was to ask you, have you ever heard of Loudoun County, Virginia? Do you know where that is? I mean, I'd would i been there. Patrick Henry College is in Loudoun County. It's in Perceville. That's west of D.C. Used to have a great little hot dog place downtown, but it's out of business now. Um, but boy, Loudoun County has sure popped up in the news in the last couple of months. And I'm guessing you've heard about that as parents have gone to school board meetings in Loudoun County, concerned about the way the school board is addressing their children's education on a number of fronts. But a big part of it is the the emergence or the the uh, the involvement of critical race theory as a part of the curriculum in Loudon County Schools. Now I'm trying to think back to when I first heard the term critical race theory, and for me it would go back a, really a couple of years. The term I heard first was cultural Marxist. Somebody was being described as a cultural Marxist, and I thought, hmm, what's that? So I Googled that and read up on that a little bit. And then I started hearing about critical race theory, CRT, and and critical theory, and I, I didn't know exactly what it was or how to make sense of it or what was going on. I mean, in in the context of talking about the reality of racism in America and whether we have systemic racism in America – and how we should respond to these things as followers of Christ. Uh, you hear about something like critical race theory, and you want to you want to approach that with an open mind. I don't remember who it was who who told me, but somebody said, "Check out this website." So I went to a website that was for me that the, the the place where I started reading what was on the website. Actually, looking at I, I think it was a PowerPoint presentation I was looking at. And I went, okay, this, this is making sense. It's not just helping me understand critical race theory, but it's helping me understand what was happening in the conversation about racism in America and in our world. I mean, it was just, it, it was, the lights were coming on for me. And I checked out the, the guy who put the website together. Turns out he is a, PhD in theoretical chemistry, which has very little to do with critical race theory, but did tell me this: anybody with a PhD in critical or in, in uh, theoretical chemistry is somebody who knows how to do research and how to synthesize a, a lot of data. So I, I knew that was a part of his makeup. I, it also turned out he was a homeschooling dad, and he went to church at uh, at a good church in North Carolina. And so I thought. I'm going to find out more. And so I started digging into what I found on Neil Shenvey's website. And the the website, and I'm just going to give it to you because you ought to check it out, Shenvey Apologetics. That's S-H-E-N-V-I, Shenvey, com, And uh, it's been a site I've gone back to many times over the last couple of years for updates, for uh, book reviews, for um, what I would have to say is some of the clearest thinking on this subject that I've come across. Because honestly, in the, in this debate, you know this, in this discussion, you have people shouting at one another from across the the room, one on one side, one on the other side, hurling accusations, throwing grenades at one another. There's a lot of heat and in some cases not a lot of light. And the thing I have loved about Neil's approach to this is that he... Is somebody who um, well i 'll tell you what I should introduce him before I, I talk more about him Neil is joining us from uh, the east Coast and he uh, he leads the website and also homeschools his kids Neil welcome to uh, Southern California live nice to have you on this afternoon
2: thanks so much Bob good to hear
1: well and and I just have to tell you i was I was starting to say as i've followed you and followed your engagement in this in this debate i've thought often of a passage of Scripture that I have come back to over and over again in the last two years in doing pastoral ministry, and that is in 2 Timothy 2, where Paul tells Timothy that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but must be kind to everyone, patiently enduring evil, engaging with his critics. I, and I, I have to go back, patiently enduring evil. I mean, I think this is a high calling, right? And I just have to say, as I've watched you engage with people on this subject, you have followed the dictate of Second Timothy 2, and it's one of the reasons I have been so grateful for your work, not just the the content of your work, but the way in which you've chosen to engage with this subject and this debate. It's um, it's countercultural, and I'm grateful for that.
2: Well, thank you, Bob. I appreciate that.
1: So this issue, now everybody's talking about it. You may have seen on Twitter last week, um, there was a video clip going around. This was right before the election in in Virginia, where a reporter was going up to to somebody in their 60s, a guy in his 60s or 70s, and saying, why are you supporting Glenn Youngkin? And he said, because I'm against critical race theory. And the reporter said, so it, what is critical race theory? And the guy said, well, I'm not going to get into all of that with you right here. And, and uh, the reporter said, no, just give me a simple definition of critical race theory. And it, it it sure looked like the guy was against something, but he didn't know exactly what it was he was against. And I think we may have some folks like that in the audience who have heard about it and think, I I, I don't think I believe it, but don't ask me to define it. So... Let's start off with that, and I know I'm asking you to do something here that I know um, is almost an impossible task, and I've seen you get into dialogue with people who want to bicker about what's the proper definition of this, but give us a layman's functional understanding of what it is that we're dealing with in the culture today.
2: Sure. So critical race theory began as a legal movement in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, and it spread into education in 1995, famous paper by Ladson, Billings, and Tate. Uh, it's basically, uh, it began by looking at the intersection of race and law and trying to understand how race and racism shaped our nation's laws. But it's really important to realize that that's how it began and not how it continued. It really has expanded tremendously. And so you have people like Angela Harris in a textbook. Uh, boasting that CRT literature is read now in Departments of Education, Cultural Studies, English, Sociology, Comparative Literature, Political Science, History, and Anthropology. And the authors of that textbook, uh, Delgado and Sipancic, write that its ideas are deployed by political scientists, women's studies professors, sociologists, theologians, and healthcare specialists. So when people say it's just a legal theory, that may have been true 30 years ago, but it's not true today. So, I like to uh, describe critical race theory in terms of a core set of ideas, uh, core tenets that you can find that these are named by critical race theorists themselves. You go to my website, I have a document entitled, What is Critical Race Theory? I offer no commentary, I just cite critical race theorists describing uh, the discipline in their own terms. So, here are the four, what I think out as the four central ideas. So, number one, Racism is a normal, permanent, and pervasive phase of the system of advantage in the U.S. So it's normal, permanent, and pervasive. Number two.
1: Hang on, hang on. I is- will go oh, through these right, slowly. Rather than you just rattling these off, let's go through these slowly. Sure, sure. Number one, okay. racism is normal. That is, it's, it's the way we live. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. And it's a part of American life. That's what we're saying, right?
2: Yes, it's not an aberration. It's built into the structure of society.
1: So, it, it, would that be the same as saying it is structural?
2: Yes, and so they would say it's you know, obviously they would agree that it can be interpersonal, it can be individual prejudice, but it's larger than that. It's also systemic. It's built into laws, into ideas, into language. So again, it's not an aberration. It's not a few bad apples out there that are racist. It's built into our society, and we take it for granted. It's just normal interaction.
1: Okay, so racism is a way of life in our culture. That's tenet number one of critical race theory. What's number two? Yeah,
2: Number two is, well, you look around and you say, that doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, I I maybe have seen a few actually outward overt racists in my life, but I don't walk around today in 2021 seeing racism and burning crosses and, and white hoods on a daily basis. So how can you say that? Well, number two, the second tenet of critical race theory is racism is concealed beneath claims of colorblindness, merit, objectivity, and neutrality. So the way that racism has adapted, it has evolved in culture, it used to be overt, but now it's gone underground, it's covert, and it's concealed beneath the guise of colorblindness, for example, or objectivity, or meritocracy. So That's why we don't see it naturally, it's hidden.
1: And so this is where we'll hear things like somebody will say, um, punctuality, the idea that you ought to be on time, that that's a cultural value. That's a a fundamentally racist idea, right?
2: Yeah, actually, the Smithsonian Institute uh, last year had an infographic listing the ethics and assumptions of whiteness. And they listed things like ideas like hard work is the key to success. That's an element of whiteness. And you're like, what? That's kind of offensive, actually. But they thought that was progressive because they're working from this framework that says that all these ideas that we take for granted as neutral actually are manifestations of racism or white supremacy.
1: Okay, that's number two. So it's, it's pervasive in our culture. It's, it's hidden because it's under these kinds of rubrics of, of white ways of thinking. What's the third thing?
2: So racism is best understood through the lived experiences of people of color. So we really should just, def- well, if you're white, then you should defer to the lived experiences of people who have experienced racism and that their experiences therefore carry innate authority to speak about racial oppression so again the issue, the issue is of epistemology how do you know what's true? and the answer is uh, the best way to know about racism or any other form of oppression is by asking those on the margin who are experiencing it and we should, uh, if we're in the ruling class, whether it's whites or men or heterosexuals, we have to defer. To the, uh, to the experiences of people that are outside of that dominant group.
1: Now, I'll stop here and just say, and this is one of the things I appreciate about your engagement with this, this kind of an assertion, there's a kernel of truth here that we ought to listen to and and gain a broader perspective on on the realities of life from from how it's lived out from other people. We, we don't just dismiss and say, well, your view has no value at all. You're just saying we, we can't locate uh objective truth in somebody's lived experience right
2: that's right and a lot of times these all of these ideas have an element of truth and that's why they're so effective because they're not just pure lies if they were, people would be like, it's ridiculous but they have these elements of truth and that people get sucked in therefore into the larger ideology so this is a good case in point of course we should listen to people's experiences and of course we're limited in our own experiences it doesn't mean that we can ground objective truth or objective reality in a certain class of person's experience. That this doesn't work that way. In fact, obviously, people of color uh, disagree, right? They have different experiences because they're individuals. They're not a class of amorphous, you know, uh, just uh, perspective. There's many perspectives within the Black community, within the Hispanic community, and so forth.
1: Well, and of course, that showed up last week when the state of Virginia elected a, a black woman to be the lieutenant governor. And all of a sudden we're hearing, well, she's not really black because she doesn't think the way we think black people ought to think.
2: You know, that's absolutely right. Um, Michael Eric Dyson was on MSNBC, and he said it, it's outrageous. He basically called her like a white, a white voice, a black mouth moving, I think he said it. Yeah, right. He called her a black mouth moving a white idea, a figure who justifies and legitimates white supremacist practices. That's the first black female Lieutenant Governor of Virginia in history. And he he says terrible things about her because, from this perspective, she doesn't have an authentically black voice. She she is maybe uh, ethnically black, but she's not politically black. Uh, So that's, uh, again, that that way of thinking exalts a person's social location as uh, uh, an element of their authority to speak, as a black woman say, and because she's not speaking the right perspective, then she's not really she's just a black mouth moving in in dyson's language
1: okay, so racism is pervasive in our culture it's hidden under all different kinds of of white ways of disguising it um, it, it is uh, it it's from the perspective of the person who gets it they they have authority if they are are of a particular race what's the fourth thing in your rubric?
2: And the final element is that racism is part of interlocking systems of oppression, which include sexism, classism, homophobia, transphobia, and a host of other uh, uh, oppressions. So you can't tackle racism on its own. It has to be addressed as a larger liberatory project that undermines and dismantles all these systems of oppression.
1: And and I remember reading this on your website, and this is one of the places where the lights came on for me when you said that in critical race theory – Everyone, what, what is centrally true about every person is we have to decide, is this person, they are either an oppressor or they are somebody being oppressed. If they are an oppressor, we need to remove power from them. If they are somebody being oppressed, we need to figure out how to give power to them to kind of bring it all into equilibrium. And all of a sudden I thought this is how the world is being ordered in our day. The, the central question is not anything about who you are as an individual, but are you part of the oppressor class, or are you part of the oppressed class?
2: Right. Remember, it's more about groups than about individuals. It's a very collectivist ideology. And so they wouldn't say, when, you're, when they say, oh, you're an oppressor, you'd press them and say, wait, what have I done to you? they say, no, 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 just part of an oppressive class. You're part of right. the system that's oppressive, and because you benefit from it, you're complicit in the suppression. So they they, it's, they might call you an oppressor. They, they, they would say it very clearly, but when, when you question, they'd back away and say, all we're saying is you're complicit in a system that oppresses people of color and women and LGBTQ people and disabled people, etc.
1: So now all of a sudden, if if somebody is looking at the world and they are saying, um, racism is pervasive in the culture. It's disguised. It it needs to be exposed. A person's lived experience needs to be uh, central to how we deal with this, and we have to divest oppressors of power. Anybody who has power is an oppressor. Anybody who needs power is an oppressed person, and we need to give power to the people, you know, and then take it away from whoever is, is a person of power. Now all of a sudden you can see th- th- the divide in our country – Really is built on on these kinds of preconceptions, and it has just exploded over the last two years. Tell listeners why it is you first became interested in this subject.
2: Well, yeah, it happened for me five years ago or so. When really, when Black Lives Matter took off, and I began noticing uh, that both the culture and even that evangelical church was changing, in it's in the language it used, you know, the way it was talking about things like racism. Sexism, etc. Um, it just sounded strange to me. Now, I was very, I was, and still am, pretty apolitical. Uh, I have my opinions, but I'm, I'm much more concerned about people's about the gospel. I want people to embrace Jesus, repent of their sins. I want the church to flourish, and so I didn't really want to distract people from that goal. That my main goal by talking about politics, in my mind. But this really hit on things that were sort of fundamental, the questions like, what's our problem in life? What's our main problem? Is it oppression or is it sin? Uh, how do, what is justice? What does that look like? What does it mean to have a just society? Uh, who's my brother? What's my identity? Is my identity primarily found in my race, ethnicity, gender, or sexuality, or is it primarily found in Christ? But those are theological questions. And the church and the culture was speaking in ways that I thought were undermining the biblical answers to those questions. This is why I got involved in this issue. Again, that was like five years ago.
1: And you started seeing a trend where people who would um, embrace critical race theory would start to lose their grip on the gospel.
2: Right. And people that were very theologically solid and conservative, uh, I thought, but then, and they begin by speaking about social justice. I thought, well, that's good. That's you know, just applying biblical principles to our laws, but actually, it meant something different because they would then begin to drift on issues of identity, gender, sexuality, and sometimes they even became just rejected Christianity completely, or or reinterpret it dramatically along more liberatory lines. They sort of embrace liberation theology, and I couldn't understand why until I began reading this literature.
1: And and Neil, one of the interesting things here is is uh, that. That with the embrace of of critical race theory, um, we we've watched um, we watched a lot come untethered. I mean, this is this is one issue, but it's one issue that seems to be interconnected with a whole host of other issues. And one of the things I so appreciate about the way you've you've, you've dealt with this, uh, a lot of people who are pro critical race theory are saying things like people like Neil Shenvey don't want American history taught. They want whitewashed American history taught. They don't want the bad side of America. They don't want to tell people about slavery or about racism. No, you you want to make sure we understand the sins of our past. You just don't want to frame it in this framework, right?
2: Exactly. I mean, my talks on critical theory broadly, I have like 10 minutes where I go through slavery and lynching and Jim Crow and black codes and modern day racial discrimination. I, I know. So, I, I, there's no sense in which I want to whitewash or erase history. I want us to learn about it. I mean, after all, we're Americans. We should learn about American history, both the good and the bad. Our country is a great place to live, and it's also got terrible racial sins in its past, and in it's present even. So that's all—we can be honest about that as Christians, because our ultimate home is not the U.S., but the kingdom of God, right? So uh, we love—we can love our country and still be honest about its, its history and, its re, and the reality of today— we don't want to reinterpret history through this faulty lens. That's my danger. That's a danger. And if we get into the goals of critical race theory, I'll talk about how they explicitly say that revisionist history is part of their goal. So they want to revise history uh, along these revisionist liberatory lines. And that's a, that's a big problem.
1: And we should say here that in case anybody missed uh, by, by your last name, Shenby, you're second generation American. Is that right?
2: Yeah, my father is Indian and immigrated here in the '70s.
1: So, you would be—would um, you be somebody? If, if if you and I met on the street, would I recognize that that you're of Indian heritage?
2: It depends whether my beard is long enough. You know, it's, <laughs> I, I just shaved it off, and so and people have. I know I had one. Uh, I usually people like, are you Hispanic? Maybe are you? They, they don't know. One taxi driver, I kid you not, looks at me and goes, "Are you half Indian?" I was like, you, sir, <laughs> gold star for you. But that's usually people don't pick out half Indian. That's kind of a, you know, that's a dark horse ethnic category.
1: <laughs> so, so you're not a European white male uh, who is a part of the oppressor class here, right?
2: Well, here's the thing. So if you understand the theory, you realize I'm positioned as, a, as white adjacent. Or an honorary white. Actually, Benia Silva, in his book Racism Without Racists, has a a categorization. He says we're moving towards this categorization. And I would be categorized as honorary white because I am, or maybe even white, recategorized because I perform whiteness. So again, whiteness is not a skin color. It's actually sort of a way of thinking, a way of acting and being raced by society. So anyway it gets complicated. So, it's like <laughs> nice to say my father's Indian. I've been to India. I, 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 so, but, but yeah, it's really hard to say where I'd be put in, under this new framework.
1: Neil Shenby joining us this afternoon on Southern California Live. We're talking about critical race theory, because look, folks, this is everywhere, and this is something you need to understand. And as, as Neil points out on his website, and as we'll get into, the, the presuppositions of critical race theory are in many ways antithetical to the scriptures and that's that's the fundamental issue we've got to be talking about here this afternoon take a quick time out we'll continue the conversation you're listening to southern california live on KKLA and K Praise There you go. There's an example of cultural appropriation right there. That's the Creedence Clearwater Revival version of Marvin Gaye's Heard It Through the Grapevine. Friday afternoon on Southern California Live on KKLA and KPRZ. I'm Bob Lapine. We're talking about critical race theory, about uh, racism. Neil Shenvey is joining us from Shenvey Apologetics. I'll, I'll again point you to his website, which is, is it com. Neil? dot com yeah dot com and that's s h e n v i Shenvi Shenby, apologetics you need to check this out so let me let me just um let, let me just ask you uh we'll, we'll throw some some fastball questions at you here is is racism still prevalent in america today
2: uh isn't that prevalent you mean it definitely is there i mean you can just talk to people' have experienced it right and it's, it's there. They've, they've had some terrible stories you can, they can tell, tell you about, but uh, I wouldn't
1: so re- deny all that re- it's there. It's present, but but prevalent is something else. Those who would say America is a fundamentally racist nation, you would say that's objectively not true.
2: No, and you can look at surveys, for example, about things like, uh, you know, comfort with interracial marriage. It's, it's remarkably high, actually. It's shocking. About one in six Americans, uh, depending on the survey, one in six Americans are opposed to interracial marriage. And it's actually even higher among the evangelical Christians, which is, again, shocking and sad. And yet that number has come down dramatically in the last even 10 years, 20 years. And so I think it's just uh, empirically true that people's attitudes have changed tremendously. Uh, we have a lot, long way to go, so I think I'd like that number be zero. <laughs> but but Nonetheless, like, to say it's a fundamentally racist culture, I think, is just wrong. And the way that people defend that claim is by redefining what racism is. But in terms of actual racial prejudice, I think it's, again, we've come a long way uh, in a short time. And I think that, uh, on average, no, people are opposed to racism. And certainly Christians ought to be.
1: Are are we, um, are, are there systems of racism? Is there systemic racism in place in our country today?
2: Uh, we have to define that carefully, so uh, that'll be a, take. A, it's not be a, a fast, fast, rapid fire question to answer. Uh, <laughs> the, the short answer is the way that critical racists define systemic systemic racism. Yes, it exists, but that definition is wrong. <laughs> I'll show you. I'll talk about that in a second.
1: Okay, so um, what about um, intersectionality? Is that not something we should well, first of all define it, and shouldn't we be concerned about it?
2: Sure. So intersectionality, uh, the term coined by Crenshaw back in 1988, I believe, 89, and she basically used it to describe how race and gender intersect so that an experience of a black woman, for example, is not just black plus woman, right? A black woman experiences life in a different way than a white woman or a black man or a white man. There's something unique about her experience. Now, that narrow claim is fine. I mean, Ben Shapiro, hardly a cultural Marxist, right? Ben Shapiro said, Look when you put it that way. Sure, it's obviously true that a black woman will experience life differently than either a white man or, a, or sorry either a white woman or a black man will. But it's become something much different, which is a larger uh, idea that there are these systems of oppression which intersect in terms of race, class, gender, sexuality, etc. That lead some people to be you know triply or, or quadruply oppressed, and other people to be quadruply advantaged, etc. And this is where the, the term oppression Olympics comes from, the idea that, you know, you get a certain number of privilege points, certain of oppression points, and it determines your, your access to truths about reality. Um, that's a, 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 another usage of the term intersectionality. Um, and I think, again, in the narrow sense, sure, uh, black women have unique experiences. But in the, um, the sort of broader sense, that really buys into the framework of critical race theory. I'd reject, obviously, that sense of intersectionality.
1: I mean, I, according to the rules, I'm at the pinnacle of of the oppressor class. I'm a straight, white, old Protestant European man in America. Yeah. So, like, actually, I, yeah. Is, is there anybody who's got more uh, oppressor power than me? Uh probably not.
2: I, <laughs> I, I, I doubt it. Uh, is it? They actually have tables. People, you know, laugh at that, but they actually have tables in books like uh, and D'Angelo. Is everyone really equal? They have a table listing various oppressions, racism, classism, sexism, uh, and then they have various oppressed groups and various oppressor groups, and you have it just tables of these things. And if you're, yeah, if you're a white, able-bodied, male, heterosexual, Christian, you're in all of the oppressor
1: categories. Can we say un- in an unqualified way that? racism, rightly defined, is antithetical to the scriptures and is, in practice, it's sinful for any Christian to practice racism?
2: Of course, it's a form of partiality. Partiality is condemned you know, uniformly, Old Testament, New Testament. You know, judge impartially, James, treat people impartially, you know, respecter of persons, because God is not respecter of persons. And you know, racial partiality is just one form of many kinds of partiality, which ought not to be even be named among Christians. We ought to not be respective persons. And so, yeah, I, I would, if, if you know, people, all of us, are inclined towards forms of partiality, and racism is one of them. And so this is not a, you know, a free pass or get out of jail free card to say, oh, I don't like critical racery, therefore I can ignore racism, or I can discount no. As Christians, we should always be ready to look at our own hearts and say, am I inclined towards this sin? And if I am, let me put it to death. But we can reject the framework without rejecting the idea that racism is a sin.
1: Does the Bible call us to be advocates for social justice?
2: Got to define it again. This is a huge problem. People don't define their terms. So if you want to be an advocate for the vulnerable and defend their rights, yes. You have ample justification in the Bible that God commands us to seek justice, defend the widow and orphan, care for them, send up for the voiceless, uh, that's why Christians do things like adoption, mercy ministries, prison ministries, uh, pro-life advocacy. That's all a form of social justice. defined biblically, the problem is that the way that critical theorists define the term social justice is not just is not limited only to applying biblical principles to our our life together. It includes things like dismantling the cis heteropatriarchy You know, d- d- dismantling systems of the gender binary, dismantling the class structure and capitalism. So that's a different definition for social justice that we have to actually reject.
1: And and this is part of the dilemma we find ourselves in as Christians, because every Christian listening, I, I think, would say, I, I don't want anybody to think of me as a racist. And I I want to be an advocate for the poor and an advocate for those who who need help. I, I want to I'm I know I'm to love my neighbor. I know the parable of the good Samaritan. So somebody comes along and says, well, if you don't support critical race theory, you're a racist. And we go, well, then I guess I have to support critical race theory.
2: Exactly. And you have to always start by asking them to define their terms. I mean, Abram X. Kendi, for example, he's not really a critical racist technically, but he definitely draws on it heavily. He's admitted that he's deeply indebted to intersectionality as a framework. And you can see it in his writings, it's very clear. But in his book, How to Be an Anti Racist, he says flat out that you are either an anti racist or a racist. And if you say, you're, oh, I'm just, I'm just, I'm in between, I'm, I'm just not racist, he says that's a mask for racism. <laughs> so he's not having it. And to him, he says explicitly in his book that you cannot be an anti racist and not be a feminist and not be anti capitalist and not also be you know, anti transphobic and anti homophobic. Those are all part of being an anti racist to him. Again, that's not implicit. He says that outright indirectly, and I can give you direct quotes from his book. So for him, if you don't subscribe to his entire view of social reality, it basically is basically almost his whole worldview, then you are a racist. And I think Christians have to simply say, look, I can't accept your definition of anti-racism then. I reject it.
1: So when the, the former president of the United States, Barack Obama, comes to Virginia and says this is a, a right-wing boogeyman that's being tossed around. And yes, there are pockets of, of critical race theory gone amuck, but this is not endemic in higher education or even in public schools. Is, is he wrong on that?
2: I think he is. So one of the problems is that critical race theory, again, it's all about defining terms. Some people define critical race theory incredibly narrowly, and I would argue wrongly, to refer only to this legal discipline. But I pointed out that if you actually read critical race theorists, they will boast that critical race theory has escaped the lab and and gone into all these other fields. So again, let me quote Angela Harris in the book Critical Race Theory Introduction she says the literature CRT literature is read in departments of education. It's the first thing she lists: cultural studies, English, sociology, comparative literature, political science, history, and anthropology. That was, an, that, that was uh, her preface in 19, 2017. That was four years ago. And if you look back at the founders, even they were saying in 1989, 1993, they were saying this is an interdisciplinary enterprise. We want it to enter other other fields, and it did. So. I, so when people say, well, uh, critical race theory is not in these schools, what they really maybe mean is, well, they're not teaching, say, Derek Bell and Mari Matsuda and Charlie's very, very esoteric legal texts in the schools. Well, sure. But critical race theory praxis, meaning how it's practiced, its ideas are absolutely there. And they, uh, whenever you see discussions of things like white privilege, systemic racism, et cetera, those are ideas that have come under the heading of critical race theory. A great book to read is uh, Korea, uh, Korea Bridges' book, CRT, a primer. She's a professor at UC Berkeley and is a critical race theorist, and she has whole chapters in her book on white privilege and systemic racism. Even though these things are, quote-unquote, not real critical race theory, they're whole chapters. So the point is that oftentimes there's a shell game going on, the date and switch, where they'll say, well, it's not in the school's, But then they define it so narrowly that uh, they're ignoring the fact that the ideas, the practical implications are, are there all over the place.
1: Neil Shenvi's joining us this afternoon on Southern California Live. Again, I'm going to point you to his website, Shenviapologetics.com. That's S-H-E-N-V-I, Shenviapologetics.com. We'll have that in the show notes here on uh, on the podcast on KKLA on our website. We'll continue the conversation and I wanna I wanna find out when we come back, Neil, about what has been the uh the emotional effect for you? What's been the blowback for you as you have waded into this area? And did you ever imagine it would be what it's been? Uh, We'll continue the conversation after this time out. This is Southern California Live on KKLA and KPraise. Southern California Live on KKLA and K-Praise. I'm Bob Lapine. Friday afternoon, we're talking about critical race theory, about racism, about justice, about what the Bible calls us to as followers of Christ, and about what we need to stand against as followers of Christ as well. Neil Shenby is our guest. His website is neil, excuse me, Shenby Apologetics, Shenby. S H E N V I apologetics.com. I hope you check it out and uh, you may want to get the link to the podcast here once it's posted and share this with others. Cause I know that this subject is something that a lot of people, a lot of us we're, we're busy and to dive down into the deep end of this and understand what's going on. A lot of us just kind of tune it out. I hope this hour is a primer for so many of us to, uh, to better understand this subject, um, and Neil, I mentioned before the break, I, I have I have to imagine when you first started writing and speaking and posting on a website about this, you thought, well, I'm just going to step in here and and just kind of raise the flag and and let people know there's something here they need to be alert to. You had no idea this would become a a cottage industry and that you would become you'd you'd have a target on your back as a result of this.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I also kind of was naive. I thought, oh, people don't really know what they're saying. Like Once they kind of hear what they're really buying into, they'll not know part of it. But actually, I think it's gotten much deeper into the church than we think. It really has affected the way people view reality. And it's very hard to to wake people up to how dangerous this is, actually.
1: So let's talk about the evangelical church in America and the way it's being addressed. Because as I said earlier, I think in a lot of cases, we have people on both sides of the the auditorium just tossing grenades at one another and there's a lot of heat but not a lot of light. Do you think that this... Do you think we're doing a good job of alerting people to what's really going on here or not?
2: Well, it depends who's doing the alerting. I mean, there certainly are two sides. There's the woke side and the anti-woke side. And Like you said, there's a lot of uh, fighting and infighting between them. Uh, I I, I think what um, people are saying the right things warning people about the right things uh, and they're, they're, they're raising the alarm uh, unfortunately it's a, it sounds imprecise like you'll just hear phrases like well critical race theory is Marxist like well really what do you mean I don't know I, I heard it on the, the radio so <laughs> you have to be able to articulate exactly what's wrong and you and and I you know I, I know everyone doesn't have time to dive into the literature but it, it's important to really be able to quote people say well they said this here verbatim they're saying this so Uh, That's helpful, because it convinces people that you know what you're talking about. Uh, The other thing I think that really the Church needs to adopt is a a model of dialogue. So I recommend uh, my friend Dr. George Yancey's book, Beyond Racial Gridlock. He's a black evangelical sociologist at Baylor, and his model for racial discussions is based on dialogue, genuine dialogue. We have people that disagree coming together as Christians to work on solutions, And uh, it's really grounded in the idea that we're all sinners. We all need each other in the Church to put out our blind spots and and work together as brothers and sisters. So I think that really does seem effective. And what's interesting, too, is that dialogue is anathema in many ways to critical race theory because their idea is oftentimes that, uh, as the Sicilian put it in their infographic, objective, rational, linear thinking, uh, they claimed— was an element of whiteness. So even trying to think rationally about me and have a dialogue could be interpreted as white supremacy, but, but that actually exposes the silly nature of these ideas, is that, no, 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 the Bible commands us to do this, to talk about things, and the, the test against Scripture. That's not a white thing, that's just a biblical thing. So by having dialogue, real dialogue in your church between brothers and sisters, will actually undermine one of the fundamental ideas of critical race, which is that we're divided. That we, we, there's an unbridgeable chasm. There has to be uh, dismantling of power structures before there can be anything like unity. And I would say, no, Christ purchased our unity on the cross. We have it already. Now we live it out.
1: And we have to understand that there are people, there are brothers and sisters of ours who— um, either because of gender-based discrimination or racial discrimination, they've experienced real wounding and real pain in their life, and that should not be trivialized or waved away, should it?
2: Right, exactly right. And there are also things like, you know, the Bible tells us we can sin unknowingly. And the Israelites had a whole uh, system for atoning for unintentional sin. And if that's the case, we should, one, we can know that we can sin without meaning to, essentially. We can do wrong things thoughtlessly. We can even do things that are hurtful thoughtlessly. I, I know something is a sensitive topic. and I can just blunder into it. Now, it's not, I'm not at fault there. If I do something, it's not a sin, but it hurts someone, then I can still say, I'm sorry sure I hurt you. I didn't know what I was doing. We should be sensitive to that. So in these discussions that are very fraught, we should come in with a gentle spirit, seeking peace, and ready to listen. Like James says, everyone should be slow to speak, quick to listen. And so, like in my church, we worked on, we, you know, we have a, a committees that say things like, get a large sampling and say, what can we do to make everyone feel welcome? And we I found, like, one example was uh, I was told that apparently some black visitors to our church felt like they were being neglected, like they weren't being greeted. And so all we did was we said, well, we, don't, we didn't, we did that intentionally. We didn't take it personally, but the church said, let's make extra sure. That because we're a majority white church, we have to be extra sure that people who are not white feel welcome here. Again, no one's to blame there. No one's going out of their way to hurt people and make them feel unwelcome. But we wanted to make extra certain that they felt welcome. So, I again, mean, simple things like that can be uh, brought to light by by groups and people working together as brothers and sisters.
1: I feel like I have to squeeze this in. It's a little bit of a bunny trail here to run, but because I'm hearing more and more about the idea of colonization and decolonization, can you Mm. explain for us what that means?
2: Yeah, it's part of this larger critical theory uh, framework of understanding reality. So in that case, the uh, the oppressed oppressor group would be, the colonialists would be the oppressors, and the colonized would be oppressed. And historically, of course, there' was actual colonialism, right You had nations going and creating colonies and the u s was a colony at one point. Uh, but then sort of more uh, uh, figuratively or analogically, we have the idea that ideas can are, are colonizing the minds or, or systems in our society, and so you 'll have this idea that what we accept as theology, like good theology, biblical theology is actually a white western eurocentric theology that has colonized the American mind, and so we need to decolonize our theology from these ideas. Now, I'm a Protestant. I'm all about going back to the Bible and saying, what does the Bible actually say? I don't want to accept anything based on my culture or what I heard on from so and so. I want to say, what does Scripture teach? But that said, I can't reject what Scripture teaches on the basis of who first articulated it. (laughs) Just because John Calvin said it doesn't mean it's either true or false. It's true or false because it corresponds to what God says in His Word, and so we can't just decolonize ideas, you know, haphazardly, assuming that anything that comes out of Europe, even remotely, is therefore false. It's a, it's a genetic fallacy.
1: And this is where, at, at the at the core, critical race theory runs afoul of of Christianity, biblical Christianity, because. We believe there is objective, absolute truth that is, that is located outside of us. And critical race theory says, no, truth is very subjective and, and very postmodern, right?
2: Well, so it's, just, it's complicated. It's a diverse discipline. So you have people like Delgado saying that objective truth, like merit, does not exist, at least in the realm of social sciences and politics. So he says that, at least in those realms, there's no objective truth. Uh, and it's all been constructed in order to justify the power of of whites. Now, he's not denying all objective truth. He would say, well, scientific truth or maybe mathematical truth might be actually objectively true, but other kinds he would be skeptical of. And unfortunately, that can easily creep into, say, theology. You could say, well, sure, science and math are objective, but theology is, you know, white neurocentric. We've, We've absorbed these ideas that are actually just elements of white supremacy. And so, again, it gets tricky uh, in terms of how they deal with objective truth, but there is a tendency to at least be skeptical of claims of objectivity, definitely.
1: Well, I hope that, and this dip, by the way, has just flown by our conversation. Yeah. You have been so helpful in addressing these things in, in very succinct ways. I hope our listeners will go to your website, ShenbyApologetics.com. You've got a wealth of information, both explanatory information, but one of the things I appreciate is the book reviews that you've done, where you're reading the, the literature I'll never have time to read and giving me a, a very, uh, a very objective look at what's good and what's bad from these books and, and really helping me process all of this, Neil, you're a gift and thank you for taking time out with us this afternoon to talk about this.
2: Well, thank you very much, Bob. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Again, Shenvi apologetics is the website. S H E N V I apologetics.com. Uh, go there and check that out. And, and really folks, this is, this is an, an, an issue that we need to have more than just a casual acquaintance with, because this is an issue that is going to continue to be uh, a flashpoint in our culture, and we need to be thinking biblically about these things. Thanks for joining us on the first hour of Southern California Live here on KKLA and Praise. Hour two is coming up next. Stay with us.